Welcome to my podcast, where today I'll talk about preparing to leave Earth orbit. This podcast comes from Chapter 3 of my book, Visions of the Church, that was first published in 2004 in one volume, together with Visions of America. In Visions of the Church, I use the troubled but ultimately triumphant flight of Apollo 13 as the narrative thread to provide an overview of 2,000 years of church history in a mere 80 pages. This podcast covers the first 300 years of the Church Universal when core beliefs of Christians, such as the Nicene Creed, were expressed in ways that I summarize as the truth of Christmas, the truth of Easter, and amazing grace. My name is Tim Harner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel Series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. And now, as I talk about preparing to leave orbit, guided by the Nicene Creed, the truth of Christmas, the truth of Easter, and amazing grace, let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Chapter 3, Preparing to Leave Orbit once an Apollo spaceship reached Earth's orbit, it stayed in orbit for a few hours. This pause in the journey gave the astronauts time to prepare for the long ride to the moon. It was called the parking orbit. During this time, the astronauts checked their spaceship carefully to make sure that everything was fine. Only after this review of the spacecraft's condition would they ignite their rocket engine and head toward the moon. In a similar fashion, the church paused in Earth orbit for about a century after it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. After this period of relative peace and quiet, the church faced renewed challenges when barbarians invaded and conquered the western half of the Roman Empire. The Universal Church Councils After three centuries of persecution, this was a golden chance to consolidate the church and its teachings before the disasters that almost overwhelmed the church when the barbarians invaded. During this time in Earth orbit, the basic doctrines of the church were summarized at universal church councils that were called by Roman emperors who were Christians. The first such universal church council was held in 325 at Nicaea. This gathering of about 230 bishops became known as the Council of Nicaea and was convened by the Emperor Constantine. He was the first Christian Roman emperor. After winning a civil war, Constantine was eager to unify the church in order to help unify the Roman Empire. One key result of the Council of Nicaea was the adoption of the Creed of Nicaea which provided the basis for what has become known as the Nicene Creed. This short statement of faith sets forth the key doctrines 
that all Christians must affirm. The original Creed of Nicaea was written in Greek, the language used by influential Greek philosophers such as Plato, the language in which the New Testament was written, the language used by early church theologians, and the language used for the deliberations at the Council of Nicaea. It is difficult to translate the theological and philosophical subtleties of the Creed of Nicaea from Greek to English. Nevertheless, because the original Greek would be totally meaningless to people such as myself who do not read Greek, here is an English version of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The story of this key era in the development of the church becomes even more complicated when it expands to cover the other universal church councils they were convened by Roman emperors from time to time over the next century. The last such universal church council was held at Chalcedon in 451. About 520 bishops attended. These subsequent universal church councils clarified the teachings of the Nicene Creed regarding central doctrines of the Christian faith. For example, the Chalcedonian definition set forth a balanced compromise the clarified aspects of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. An English translation of the Chalcedonian definition reads as follows. Wherefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same consisting of a reasonable soul and a body of one substance with the Father is touching the Godhead, the same of one substance with us is touching the manhood. Like us in all things apart from sin, begotten of the Father before the ages is touching the Godhead, the same in the last days for us and for our salvation, born from the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, that's a Greek word meaning God-bearer, as touching the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, 
to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and concurring into one person and one subsistence. The word is hypostasis in Greek. Not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus Christ instructed us, and the Creed of the Fathers was handed down to us. These subsequent universal church councils also refined the decisions of the Council of Nicaea regarding issues, such as the organizational structure of Nicaea regarding issues such as the organizational structure of the church, the canon of the Bible, the rituals for worship, and the giving of the sacraments. For example, one of the key issues was the relative importance and powers of the bishops of both Rome and Constantinople. Rome was the traditional capital of the Roman Empire, but Constantine, the first Christian emperor, had founded Constantinople as a new Rome that would not be tainted by the original Rome's pagan past. On a more practical note, Constantine wanted this second capital of the Roman Empire in the eastern half of the empire in order to strengthen his hold over these vast regions. The eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire were gradually drifting apart, and the eastern and western halves of the church reflected this gradual drift also. Therefore, on this touchy issue of the relative importance of the bishops of the two capital cities, the Council of Chalcedon adopted the following compromised language that gave Constantinople equal privileges with Rome. It also said that Constantinople was second after the original Rome. The fathers properly gave the primacy to the throne of the elder Rome because that was the imperial city and the 150 most religious bishops, being moved by the same intention, gave equal privileges to the most holy throne of New Rome, judging rightly that the city, Constantinople, which was honored with the sovereignty and senate, which enjoyed equal privileges with the elder and royal Rome, should also be magnified like her in ecclesiastical matters, being the second after her. As you can begin to see, it would take an entire book to cover the Universal Church Councils adequately. Furthermore, one would need PhD educations in philosophy, theology, ancient languages, Roman history, and church history in order to fully understand the Universal Church Councils and their progressive decisions. Only then could someone fully grasp the relative teachings of the scriptures, the mysteries of the theologians, the quarrels of the philosophers, and the passions of the politicians. For our purposes, it will suffice to think of the Nicene Creed and additional statements of faith that other universal church councils adopted as affirming the truth of Christmas and the truth of Easter, because these early creeds often focused primarily on the nature and meaning of the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the truth of Christmas? What is the nature and meaning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? What is the truth of Easter? 
What is the nature and meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It would take entire books to cover these truths that light the world, these visions of truth that light humanity. Here are some highlights. The truth of Christmas. The truth of Christmas is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And although this is a mystery that seems impossible, it is nevertheless true. How can it be? Because what is impossible with humans is possible with God. The truth of Christmas is that Jesus is God incarnate. One title that the Bible gives Jesus is Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. Therefore, the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into being is also the Jesus who walked among us blessing children, welcoming sinners, weeping with those who weep, and washing the feet of those in need. The truth of Christmas is that God cares about each one of us. God is not merely far away tending the birth of new stars. God is near at hand tending the birth of each baby. God is not merely counting the millennia while humanity gains technological prowess. God is counting the hairs on each person's head. God is not merely watching as the galaxy turns. God is watching each sparrow that falls. The truth of Christmas is that each person is eternally, infinitely important. Whoever welcomes a little child welcomes Jesus Christ. There is a kingdom prepared since the creation of the world for those who give a hungry person something to eat, those who give a thirsty person something to drink, who give shelter to a stranger, who give clothes to a needy person, who look after a sick person, or who visit a prisoner. Eternal life awaits the person who performs such tiny acts of kindness but eternal fire and eternal punishment await each person who neglects to perform such tiny acts of kindness as unto the Lord Jesus himself. The truth of Christmas is that our lives have meaning. There is a true union between spiritual values and physical reality. Faith, hope, and love exist in history, not merely in myth. The truth of Christmas is that God is a person, that is why God could only be perfectly revealed to us by becoming flesh and dwelling among us as a person. And that is why we can only know God perfectly by having a personal relationship with God, our friend. We cannot be a friend to a human merely by thinking thoughts, learning facts, and following rules. We must laugh with our friend. We must weep with our friend. We must hope the best for our friend. We must hug our friend. Similarly, we cannot be a friend to God merely by thinking thoughts, learning facts, and following rules. Being a friend to God requires the engagement of our whole personality, our laughter, our tears, our hopes, our hugs. By living among us, Jesus revealed that God is such a person, such a friend to us. Jesus laughed. Jesus wept, Jesus hoped, and Jesus hugged. The truth of Christmas, that Christ came in the flesh and God dwelt among us, brings peace on earth and peace for all humanity. The truth of Easter. 
The truth of Easter is that Jesus rose from the dead. And although this historical fact seems impossible, it nevertheless is true. How can it be? Because what is impossible with humans is possible with God. The truth of Easter is that our sins are forgiven. On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. Now, instead of suffering eternal death, we can enjoy eternal life. And because our sins are forgiven by God and forgotten by God, we can forget what is behind and press on toward what is ahead, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The truth of Easter is that we need no longer fear death. We should weep at the tombs of those we love, just as Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. However, we should not grieve like those who have no hope. For we believe that we shall meet again those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We will laugh with them again. We will hug them again. The truth of Easter is that there is always hope. No matter how much it looks as if we have failed, no matter how much it looks as if evil has triumphed, there is still hope. Therefore, we must still keep the faith. We must still keep loving. Because in God's good time and in God's good way, God will bring good from evil, healing from suffering, and life from death. How? Although this is impossible for humans, it is possible for God. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The truth of Easter gives joy to the world, joy for all humanity. St. Augustine The most famous Christian from this Roman era of church history is St. Augustine. He was born in North Africa in 354. His father worshipped the Roman gods, and his mother worshipped God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. St. Augustine was a pagan for much of his early life. He became a disciple of Jesus Christ at about the age of 30. The story of the spiritual journey that took St. Augustine from paganism to Christianity is told in his famous book, Confessions. In the pages of his personal confession to God, Augustine describes the lust that enslaved him until he found freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. He also describes the intellectual doubts that he had about the truth of Christianity until he believed in Jesus Christ. As he looked back on the long and winding road that had led to his conversion to Christianity, St. Augustine saw how the fervent, patient prayers of his mother for his salvation were answered by the providence and grace of God. His years of searching for the truth ended in a moment of sudden revelation and conversion. As he described that moment in his confessions, he speaks of experiencing an emotional and spiritual crisis 
as he realized his utter inability to control his loss. I probed the hidden depths of my soul and wrung its pitiful secrets from it. And when I mustered them all before the eyes of my heart, a great storm broke within me, bringing with it a great deluge of tears, for I felt that I was still the captive of my sins. I was weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, Take it and read it. Take it and read it. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. It would be more than a thousand years until the hymn was written that best describes St. Augustine's experience of God's grace. But since with God a thousand years passes as quickly as if it were a single day, we should not be surprised that St. Augustine in Roman times experienced the truth about God's amazing grace that Christians of today sing about in the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. In the finest Roman tradition, St. Augustine was well-educated in the ways of rhetoric and in the arts of government. Accordingly, he soon became the Bishop of Hippo, a city in North Africa, where he ministered for the remaining 40 years of his life. St. Augustine was such a skillful debater and gifted writer that he found himself constantly explaining why Christianity was the truth. He was also brilliant at explaining the interrelationship between Christian beliefs and the main philosophical beliefs of his culture, especially the ideas of ancient Greek philosophers such as Plato. St. Augustine's ideas are preserved in many books, the most impressive of which is The City of God. In this monumental work that took 14 years to complete, St. Augustine first refuted traditional Roman religious beliefs. He then showed how all of history could be seen as a struggle between two cities, an earthly city full of lusts and a heavenly city full of love. It is fascinating to speculate how much St. Augustine's long struggle against lust in his personal life, gave him the insights needed 
for his monumental depiction of the struggle between good and evil in the heavens and upon the earth. St. Augustine's seemingly futile struggle against sin in his own life ultimately culminated in the triumph of good. And in the city of God, Augustine shared his faith that the seemingly futile struggle against sin in the heavens and upon the earth will ultimately culminate in the triumph of good in the heavens and on earth. Writing in an era when Christians were savoring their triumph over paganism, and when the Roman Empire was enjoying one last Indian summer before the winter of the barbarian conquests, St. Augustine gave us a vision of the future of the Church that is glorious and triumphant. As he reached the end of writing The City of God, St. Augustine realized that the ultimate destiny of the City of God, which in our era is the Church, is to be delivered from all ill, filled with all good, enjoying the delights of eternal joys. When we at last know that peace of God was passeth all understanding, we shall enjoy eternal repose not only of the spirit, but also of the body. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? Just as the first two verses of Amazing Grace perfectly describe that moment when St. Augustine first experienced God's joy and peace in his own life, the final verse of Amazing Grace perfectly describes those endless ages that St. Augustine envisioned when the city of God, the church, will experience God's eternal joy and peace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well as my website, timharner.com. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.